The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. If you'll turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. Today what we're looking at is uh, in this, we're hearing all about the witness of John the Baptist, the way he bore witness of Christ and why he bore witness to Christ. The famous words of John, if you remember in the account when he first saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And that was his testimony. And there was a first witness who was brought forward to talk about Jesus. One of the things that's interesting is that there's this expectation that at the second coming, there will be this process of baptizing going on because it's, it's, uh, because it is expected that the second coming of Christ is going to bring many, many conversions. People are going to turn to Christ when they see him and know him and understand him. They're going to believe upon him. And John here in this particular second, I'm talking about John the Baptist, by the way. Uh, there is a Baptist denomination that believes that every Baptist pastor should be able to trace their baptism back to John the Baptist, <laughs> which is amazing. You know, you, you were baptized by somebody who was baptized by somebody who was baptized. They go all the way back to John. They would trace their ancestry that way. Well, it's impossible. I, my uh, insurance agent is a, belongs to that denomination, and I was asking him about it, and he says, oh, we all understand it's impossible, but it's just a part of our culture that we all are descended from John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist wasn't baptizing a Christian baptism. He was baptizing a preparation for Christ to come, the Messiah to come. And uh, he was basically baptizing Jewish people. And there were other movements that were going on where they were baptizing people who wanted to be brought into the nation of Israel to become part of the people of God. And so uh, he has these men come to him to question him because they have been assigned something. They were told by the Pharisees to go and find out who this John was and, and what was going on, John the Baptist. And so the expectations of most people in that day was that they expected Messiah to come. You probably have heard of Qumran, which was a, a society, a, a community of people who had certain beliefs. They had Jewish messianic expectations. They believed that Messiah would come, and that uh, that there would be a he, there would be a prophet, there would be a priestly Messiah and a royal Messiah. That is a kingly Messiah, and so there was all of this discussion and talk about who in the world this uh, was that Jesus was really who we're talking about the coming of Jesus Christ, and um, the Jews were very concerned about John's baptism because John came on the scene and began to baptize people to prepare them for the coming of Jesus Christ, that is, the, the Messiah. Now, the word Messiah, uh, Mashiach in the Old Testament, is, uh, means the, the anointed one. He was the one that God promised he would send into the world to his people. And uh, this, this person, is this Messiah, is the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. It was the Father sending his Son to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so they had some questioners come to them. They wanted to know what his credentials were. This was John the Baptist. Who, is your, what are, who are your credentials? And so they asked him, do you know the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? And he said, no, I'm not the Messiah. And they said, well, are you, uh, are you this person, that person, Elijah, for example? They asked him if he was Elijah. Well, I, most of you are probably aware that Elijah didn't die in Scripture. He was taken up in a fiery chariot into heaven. And so he never did physically die. 
That's what we're told in the scriptures about him. They're wanting to know, well, who are you anyway? And so there, there were three responses to their questions. He reveals basically what he is not. He is not the Messiah. This is John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. He was aware of the fact that Elijah went into heaven in a fiery chariot, and he was a part of God's plan and purpose. But John the Baptist resembled Elijah in a lot of different ways. They, they dressed alike. They, they, they actually had the same style of dress. They dressed in things that were very rough and uh, primitive, and uh, their style was the same. They were very urgent about repentance. I don't know if you ever think about this, but uh, let, me, let me read to you something. This is, this is out of uh, the New Living Translation in Philippians 4.6. This is what it says. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. This really gets me. He says, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. That's a good one to memorize. (laughs) And he says, this is the thing that you should remember. You should seek these things. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learn and receive from me. I can't imagine somebody being able to tell that to anybody. Live just like I did. You saw how I lived for Christ. Watch me and live just like I do. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. I wouldn't have the guts to say that, would you? But that's what he tells them. You can follow my pattern of life as you watch me live for God in this fallen world. And of course, this was John the Baptist. So John responds to these questions they have. The reason they have the questions is they were sent out by Pharisees. And the Pharisees wanted the answers to these questions. Well, who are you anyway? Are you Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Who are you? They had to go back and give him an answer. And so when they went to him and asked him these questions, he's just telling them, no, that's not who I'm in. So they said, well, who are you then? And he says, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. Now, what's that all about? Well, that was what was prophesied that this John the Baptist would do, that he would call out to people to tell them where the Lord is coming uh, and that they should be ready and prepared for him. When he meets Jesus, it was really fascinating because John the Baptist humbly rejects the exalted title that was given to him as a voice crying in the wilderness. But Jesus bestows it on him. That's true humility. In other words, he couldn't stand to acknowledge that he was who Jesus said he wasn't that great. But he did tell them he was not the prophet. Who he was was a voice crying in the wilderness. This was his role. God had put him there for this purpose, to announce the coming of Jesus Christ. He was a precursor. That is, he was somebody who was out in front and letting people know that the Messiah had come. That was his whole role, was to announce to the people that the Messiah had come. John's response to these questions of his authority John the Baptist did this. He was very focused. He turned his attention completely on Christ. He talked about Christ. He he pointed to Christ, and he was very bold. He knew that he has God-given authority. He said that God sent me, but he's also humble. That's quite a a, a combination, isn't it? The man knows that God sent him, and yet he's humble about it. And he says, I have authority from God to do this, but I am nothing compared to who he is. I simply bear witness of him. 
It's kind of like in the Bible, a student is expected to do for his teacher whatever a slave would do, except one thing. He couldn't take his shoes off. Now you might wonder, why is that? Because shoes were a symbol of authority. And so the, the student could never remove the shoes of his teacher. It was something he would never do. So this man was very focused. He was bold and humble. Only the Holy Spirit can produce witnesses like that. And that's what the Spirit produced in John the Baptist as he came. John's witness about Jesus is found for us in verse 29 through 34 in chapter 1 of John, if you'll turn there. John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34. And this is what he says. The next day, John saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was John's evaluation of him. And he says, This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I. For he existed before me. Remember, they're cousins. They're, they're contemporaries. And yet he says, this man has, was, has been here before me. And that is because he is eternal. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested in Israel, I came baptizing in water. The reason I baptized in water was to point to Jesus Christ, that the Messiah was coming. He was in our presence. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He, now get this, he says to John the Baptist, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, abiding upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So who baptizes in the Holy Spirit? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he saw the Spirit come upon and remain upon Jesus Christ. He's the one who gives the Spirit. And so he says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. He is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And we're told, for example, in the New Testament, in several places, that this is a part of our salvation, that we were baptized in the Spirit. And because we were baptized in the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, probably a familiar verse to most of you, for by one Spirit we're all baptized into one body, and we're made to drink of one Spirit. What he's talking about is the body of Christ is being formed through this work of Jesus Christ of baptizing us into the Spirit. We were baptized in the Spirit, and as a result, we became the church of Jesus Christ. We became one body. We became one with each other. Remember Jesus, he said, I'm going to give you one more commandment, the new commandment, and that is that you love one another the way I have loved you. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. That is the result of the work of the living God. What John tells us here is that he was a witness, and he did what a witness was supposed to do. He focused his complete attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. He told us all about him. He told the people all about him. He was uh, bold. He knows he has a God-given authority, because he says in verse 33 that God sent me. But he's humble, and he says that I have authority from God to do this, but I am nothing compared with the one to whom I bear witness. I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy named Morehouse who was a pickpocket in Europe, and he was very well known because he was very good at his trade. (laughs) And Dwight L. Moody met him on one of his trips to Europe, and this guy began to talk to him, and he said, you know, I'd like to come to your church sometime and give a sermon. (laughs) And so Moody says, come by and see me. So he did. He came by. And so Moody, then he, he didn't know exactly what to do. He felt kind of funny, but he said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll let you preach in the basement on this weekend. I'm going to be gone, and you can preach there. And so he did. And when, his, when he came home, he asked his wife, how did he do? And she says, well, he's not like you. He, he preaches a different message. He, he preaches that, 
that God loves sinners. And Moody says, no, he doesn't. And, and uh, they have several other men and the other men of the word who said, no, God doesn't love sinners. Does God love sinners? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a fairly well-known truth today by most Christians. We understand that, that God loves sinners, that he sent his son. What does John 3.16 say? It says, for God so loved the world. That was the motivation for sending his son into the world, that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so God loves sinners, and he manifests love towards them by sending the Savior into the world. And so this man who preached this way was a total shock to Moody and others, who he, he kept telling people that God loves you. God loves you, and that's the reason he sent his son to die for you, in order to bring you into the family of God. And this, is, this, this was his witness, his testimony. John the Baptist also had authority. The questions that he often got about his authority, he said, um, what do you do exactly? Well, he said he acts like a witness, should act. And that is, he was focused. He turned only to Christ. He talked about Christ alone. I don't know how long you have been a believer individually. I'm not going to take the time to ask each one of you, but you've been saved for some time. You've been a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. What should you be doing? Well, you should be focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ because you are a mouthpiece for God. You're here for that very purpose, is to announce the truth about who Christ is. Do you think most of the people that you know know who Christ is? I don't think so. Most of the people I know don't know Jesus Christ. That is outside the church, outside of a group of believers. And when you talk to them about it, sometimes they're quite fascinated by it. This is what we believe. For example, the greatest event that ever took place in the life of the church that completely changed things. What happened was, early on, the church was an enemy of the state in Rome. But by 300 AD, Rome became a Christian kingdom. It was the Holy Roman Empire. How did that happen? Well, there was an event. And you know the event. The event was Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. I I was supposed to go to a hearing here recently, and I remember trying to think through what I was going to say, and I wanted to say that. I wanted to say that Jesus Christ has come, and we look to him. He's the one we look to for our strength, and we look to for our salvation. We all understand that people would think you were crazy if you told them, you believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He was literally raised from the dead. And that changed everything in the history of the church. The church became the legal church of the Roman Empire. It was the arch enemy of the Roman Empire until that took place. But once Christ was raised from the dead and the word went out, and this became the primary message of all Christians, that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. This one that we say it can save you from your sins rose from the dead, and he has the power to give you life. And uh, we need to be able to communicate that to people. It may sound crazy to you that you think, well, they certainly don't want to hear that. My friends don't want to hear that Jesus was raised from the dead. You might be surprised. You might be surprised to say, you know why I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? And then you begin to tell them, well, because of these effects in my life that I put my faith in him. And I now have a relationship with a living Savior who is alive, and he has been raised from the dead, and he's in the presence of God. This was the event that changed the world. It was something that a lot of people wish had never happened because it was embarrassing to them that we carry this around. Oh, so you're a Christian, and you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Amen. Yes, we do. We believe he was raised from the dead. 
and that that is the basis of our salvation. It proves that God received what Christ did for us by dying on the cross in order to save us. Now, you've heard this expression in Scripture many times where it says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Have you ever thought about that? Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Well, it happened at Calvary. What was going on in Calvary? Jesus was hanging on the cross. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the Lord of glory, was being crucified by fallen sinners. That was the greatest sin that had ever taken place, that the entire human race turned against him. That was that were in, in this situation. They turned against him, and they wanted him murdered. The Jews wanted the Romans to give them Jesus as, instead of Barabbas. Instead of having a, a criminal die on a cross, they wanted Jesus to die on the cross. And, uh, but that was also the place where grace abounded much more, because that's where Jesus died for my sins and your sins. It was in a place that some awful thing was taking place because humanity, God's creation, had turned against him, and they were putting his son to death. And in that moment, he was paying for our sins. And this is why we talk to people about the death of Christ. But we should also talk to them about the life of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, it mentions several things there. It says that we should be aware of these things, which make up the gospel. That Jesus died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again according to the Scriptures. And those facts, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, have been validated by the testimony of his eyewitnesses. Every one of the disciples that we call apostles, these apostles all saw the resurrected Christ. They saw the evidence that God had raised his son from the dead. He had stood in our place, and he died for our sins, and then when it was all over, the Father raised him from the dead to give us a clear signal, yes, I accept his work on your behalf as payment in full for your sins. And that's why it's true that God does love sinners. It's not that he likes your sin, it's that he loves you. And because he loves you, he wants you to hear the gospel. He wants you to know the gospel. He also wants you to speak the gospel. He wants you to communicate the gospel with others. And if he by any chance calls you to an, as a people of another language, he wants you to learn how to share the gospel in their language because they need to hear in their heart language what it is that Jesus Christ has done for us. He's come into the world and died for our sins, and he's been raised from the dead. In this passage here, in verse 24 through 28, it talks about John's authority. The question regarding his authority was, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ? He says, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, and I'm not Elijah, and I'm not the prophet. Then why are you baptizing? And he says, because God has sent me to do this. You are not practicing baptism, not because you don't have the authority to do it, but because this is what God has called you to do it. Some Jewish Jews practiced a proselyte baptism, which meant they baptized people that were not Jewish to bring them into the society of the Jews to become a part of this movement. And so they would baptize them into this new life, which this new life, the baptism, as we all know it, we see it, we've watched people be baptized. We know that it's picturing two things. It's picturing a death and a resurrection. And this death and resurrection is the end of the old life and the beginning of a new life. And this is exactly what happened. Every time someone's baptized, I still remember my baptism. I was baptized. It just so happened my uncle was a pastor in Antioch, and they borrowed the baptistry at the Church of God down on the main street going through there. I think it's called Leaves now, <laughs> L-E-A-V-E-S. And uh, I remember being baptized in the baptistry, and when I came up out of the water, I had kind of long hair, 
maybe like kind of like Tony's probably. <laughs> and and when I slung my hair around, I just splattered him with water. I splashed him up really good. But that was the day that I was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and I knew that my identity was in him. I knew that I had become a part of the body of Christ because I was taught that, that that's what happened to me. I was saved by the work of the living God, and he brought me into the family of God, and I became a part of the body of Christ. And so John's authority here, he says, back in Ezekiel 36, referring to him, It was a sign that they were a righteous community at the end time. That's what was going to happen. And God says in that passage, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols, and I will give you a new heart. I'll give you a new heart. Isn't that amazing that God gave you a new heart? You know, I could say, hey, you need to get a new heart today. But if you're a believer, you have a new heart. You may not be aware of it, but you have a new heart. And this new heart is capable of loving the living Christ, the one who came into the world and died for our sins. And, uh, and so we should be just like a witness that John the Baptist was. That is, we should be focused, turning our attention on Christ. I need to learn about Christ. I, I read that little thing to you for this reason. It's so easy to give up on these kind of things. I often run into passages like this, and I want to memorize it. And I don't have a motorcycle anymore, so I can't ride around thinking of these things as I'm looking at the scenery. And I'm trying to figure out, how am I going to memorize this? This Every time I think I have it, I try to say it, and I run out of juice. I don't have it. Because it's the, it's the most wonderful thing that we ought to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let our requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, we can't even understand it, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And this is what we are called to do. We're called to live in such a way that people can follow our example. That's quite a task, isn't it? That we would live in a way that people could follow our example in following Christ. I'm talking about following your example in prayer, following your example in sharing the gospel with people. Have you ever been around someone who shares Christ with somebody and it surprises you? It just seems like they're so comfortable and they're able to, to talk to them about Christ, about the most important things in all the world that you would be scared to death to. My son-in-law is like that, Randy Refner. I've never met a guy that was so free to witness about Christ in any kind of circumstance. And he's a very well-liked guy. He knows a lot of people and people really like him. And yet every time I've been with him, in fact, at Grace School of Theology, which was a school that we had at Valley Bible Church, He led so many guys to the Lord, and they all ended up coming to our school because they wanted to be trained to be teachers of the Word and to see people changed by the Word of God. And uh, I used to be amazed at it. I couldn't believe it. I know several of them are on the mission field now. What is it that motivates that? What motivates that is exactly what motivates you, that I wish I was like that. Don't you? I wish I was like that. I wish I could share Christ continually. Every time God gives me opportunity, I still remember conversations with guys where I was surprised at how God worked in a situation where I couldn't think of one thing I could say that would get their attention, and yet they heard the gospel and they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God at work, and he can use people like us. That's the amazing thing. That's why he loves sinners, and so he can use us. Not one of us have come to the place where we could say, I'm no longer a sinner. I finally got my sanctification, and now I'm a perfect person, so God can use me. That doesn't work like that. 
He uses us as we are. He uses us by bringing sanctification, but also by bringing the power of the presence of the Spirit. And we're able to do that very thing. I want to read to you from Matthew, Matthew chapter uh, 3, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Let me just read this real quick. It says, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent. Now that's not a good, that's not, that doesn't sound like a really uh, attractive message, does it? Repent. Change your mind, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You see what he's talking about? We need to make the, 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 the way ready for the Lord by, by our faith in him, our trust in him. We trust him and we believe on him. And so we hear about him. We want to know him. In fact, we're told, I think I mentioned this last week, that one of the things that motivates us, the primary thing that motivates us to worship Christ is seeing his glory. When we see him in glory, because that's what worship is. It's bowing the knee and saying, praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the Spirit opens my eyes and lets me see the glory of Christ, it motivates worship. We want to worship him. And so we're not surprised at times when God works in our lives in such a way that we're not in control. He is. And he's opened our eyes to something so glorious that we have to worship him. And so he is um, telling us, he says in verse 8 of this is Matthew 3, Therefore bear fruit in keeping for, with repentance. In other words, if you, if you repent, you need to bear fruit. That, that bears evidence that you've repented. In other words, I turn away from my sin and I turn to, towards God and to my responsibility and my privilege of sharing Christ with others. And he says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourself, we have Abraham as our, for our father. For I say to you that from this, this, these stones, God is able to raise up the children of Abraham. Now, what he's saying there is this. There's nothing else I can look to except faith in Christ. It's only Christ that I can look to as the basis of my acceptance with God. I can't look to anything else. I can't look to my ancestors. I can't look to those who served the Lord before me. All I can do is look to Jesus Christ, and have faith in him that he's able to save us. He's able to turn us. He's able to to give us life indeed so that we can actually, we'll have something to give to people that cannot be given in any other way except through the work of the Spirit in our lives. What John the Baptist said about Jesus was, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That, That holds a lot of information, doesn't it? that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does that mean? Well, this, this comes from the tradition concerning the Passover lamb, the lamb that God provided in Genesis 22, and the lamb that delivers from death in Exodus 12. This Passover lamb, remember what happened initially, that the, the death angel was going to come through and take the life of all of these firstborn children. There was a curse on Egypt. But he tells them, if you take a lamb, you have to identify this lamb. It's a lamb that meets certain requirements, and you shed his blood, and then you put his blood over the doorpost, then your children will be saved through that. They won't be touched by this death angel. Jesus is condemned at noon on the day before the Passover, at the very time when the priests would begin to slay the lambs in the temple. That's what would happen. People would bring their lambs, and they would celebrate this, that God saved them before. He caused them to be saved from this judgment that was coming on the people of God. If you remember, another part of that ceremony was hyssop. 
I don't know what hyssop is exactly, but it's sponge-like, and they would put wine in it to give a drink to somebody, and it was given to, they smeared the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost to show that this family, this family has put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This family has put their trust in the lamb, the Passover lamb, so they wouldn't suffer as they had been condemned to suffer if they did not do this. So we're supposed to remember, in Romans 5.20, it tells us that the law came in so that the transgression would increase. What does that mean? It means that God put down in writing, we saw in the words, the very words of God, that this is sin. If I do this, I am being disobedient to God. I am rebelling against God. And the reason he does that, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. That is so that we'd be seen for what it is. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so on Calvary, you saw the sin, the greatest sin of all time, where Christ was was murdered by his own creation. But we also saw grace. My sins were paid for. (laughs) Do you remember when you first heard the message of the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins, and he was buried and rose again? I still remember that. I remember as a little kid, and and I thought, that is astounding, that Christ died for my sins? He was, the, he was the curse bearer for my sins. The curse that was on me was transferred to Jesus Christ because he was willing to die in my place so that I could have life. And the life that I received was his life. That's why in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, it says, this is the testimony that God has given to us eternal life. This life is in his son. So whoever receives the son receives the life. The reason I have eternal life is not because I've done something good. It's because I've received Christ, which is something good. But it was done supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he opened my eyes and let me see. And I wanted Christ more than anything else in life, and so did you. That's why you received Christ. I love to hear the testimony of the saints when they start explaining why did they turn to Christ? Why did they come to believe on Christ and put all of their faith in him? And this is what happens to every single one of us. So the witness of John the Baptist, when he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, is the same, very same message, the same witness that we bear today. This is what we're telling people. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and he's the Lamb of God. He pays for our sins. Now this meant something to them, because they would, they would slay many, many lambs uh, continually as a picture of the forgiveness of the people of God in the nation of Israel. And these, the lambs would be slain, their, their throats would be cut, the blood would be applied in one way or another, and they would receive forgiveness of sins. Now that's science. A lot of people say that's a bloody religion. Uh, well, the reason it's, it's bloody is because the blood is a manifestation of God's suffering under the penalty of sin in our place. Did God give him a buy on this, or did he actually have to experience the very same judgment that we would receive? if we were judged for our sins. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Jesus went to the cross and died. If you've gone to the movie, The Passion of Christ, and you know that they portrayed the suffering that he had, was it's horrible, isn't it? I can remember watching that movie and sitting in the theater, and it was just dead quiet. People just sat there because it was so overwhelming to watch a portrayal of what happened to Jesus Christ, what he was willing to go through in order to stand in our place to die for our sins. And this is what we have been commissioned to tell people. We've been commissioned to tell them about the good news of Christ's death in our place and that salvation is now a free gift to everyone who receives it by faith. I once told a guy who was telling me that he really needed to turn over a new leaf and start living better 
because he knew he was getting old and he was having some physical problems. And he says to me, um, you know, I, I, I understand I really need to start getting it together because I'm not living like I am. I'm really in, in big trouble if I die because I have no, no status, no, no way I could say to God, let me into your heaven. And uh, I said, you know, the only way you could ever get to heaven is if God gave it to you as a gift. That's the only way. And, you know, I can say that to you. There's no way you could ever get to heaven if God were not to give it to you as a gift. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. You simply receive it by faith. You trust him because he's offered it to you. He has told you the reason for all of this was so that he could save you. I mean, think of this. In the mind and heart of God, as he looks at you, he sees you as one for whom he sent his son to die and be resurrected so that you could become a part of the family. I love that expression that says that that God calls his son, he wants his son to be the firstborn among many brethren. You know what a firstborn is? The firstborn would be the, it simply would mean it was the primogenitor. It was the first fruit of the womb that came. And that this, this had a, always had a special place. In every culture it's this way. There's a special place for the firstborn. But what Jesus, Jesus is, is the firstborn because he's the monogenes. Monogenes doesn't just mean firstborn. What it means is one of a kind. Who is like Jesus? No one. He has been with the Father from all eternity. And the Father said, I want you to go into the world, and I want you to save my people. And he said, how am I going to do that? You're going to die for their sins and be buried and resurrected. And everyone who puts their trust in you will receive this salvation as a free gift. A free gift. It's funny, isn't it, the way things are going now because this pandemic is all kinds of things are being offered to you. Sometimes it's just a hook for another uh, profit to be made. But uh, what's happening is people are being offered all kinds of things because they know that people are in need. Well, we are in need, and the need is huge. It's massive. Our need is we need forgiveness for our sins, and we need eternal life so that we could live in the presence of God. And we can live in a family that the firstborn is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why I have this confidence that when I go to the Lord, he wants to hear me. He actually wants to hear us. He wants us to spend time in his presence. And what we do do find out is from the word, the testimony of the word, as we read it and as we begin to take it in and digest it, we realize that Jesus is glorious and we want to worship him. By that I mean we want our whole life to be an act of worship to the living Christ. We want to live our lives in such a way that people would ask, why is it that you're so uh, affected by knowing who the Lord Jesus Christ is or knowing who Jesus is? Well, it's because he's my Savior, and he's glorious. He's very, he's glorious. God sent his Son into the world to die for our sins, and we discovered that he's a glorious God, and he has done this for us because of his love for us. And so today, what I really want to leave with you is simply that God loves sinners, and you are one. <laughs> and you think, boy, that's audacious. No, it's not. I'm one, too. But I don't keep a track record of my sins But let me tell you, I don't have to write them down. I know I'm a sinner. And I know that the only way that I can be made right with a living God is through faith in Jesus Christ because of his death in my place. And so you are witnesses. You have been given the Holy Spirit so that you could be empowered by the Spirit to bear witness of Christ to those who need to hear it. And you know who needs to hear it? Everybody around you. There's nobody that is a part of your life that goes, passes, Uh, in front of you, 
that does not need the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what we need. It's what we need to believe and put our trust in and rely upon. And so Jesus Christ wants you to do that very thing. He wants you to be a witness of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's, it's a glorious role to play. It's what every believer has been called to do. And so let me pray for you. Our Father, we thank you so much for the work of Jesus Christ, that he came into a world and he dealt with our sin in such a, a, a way that is so surprising to us. But we thank you for your love for us, that you would love us this much, that you would be willing to send your own son to stand in our place and pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be free and we could be right with you. We pray, O oh God, that, that this, this truth about who we are in Christ Jesus would sink in so deeply that we couldn't help but tell others about this glorious gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ who came into the world for us, that he could rescue us and save us and bring us into your presence. We thank you for that. And Father, I think about the day we're going to be gathered together in his presence. There's going to be this great in-gathering and we're going, to, we're going to be there because of our salvation in Christ. I pray, oh God, that would be a day of great reunion. We would see many, many people who have turned to Christ and have found life and life indeed in him. We pray that you would use us for your glory, that you would, you would produce divine effects through our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.